Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be homeless? What it would be like to have all of the things we enjoy taken away from you and to be living out in the open? Homelessness and Chelmsford is there for all to see. You only need to walk down the high street at any time of day to see homeless people on the streets. And back in February of this year, the city hit the headlines when Rob O'Connor, a man who was sleeping rough, died following a night of freezing temperatures. Call to be kind, Chelmsford, one of the city's leading homeless organisations, estimate that there are currently 48 rough sleepers just in Chelmsford city centre alone. But behind the statistics and the numbers, there is a limited understanding of what actually goes on in the streets. Underneath everyone's noses, there is another society, another world, where there are no rules and it's a free-for-all. That's life living on the street. And there is far more to it than simply picking a place to bed down for the night. It's often said you can't know it unless you experience it. So that's what I decided to do. For 24 hours, on one baking hot August weekend, I lived as a rough sleeper on Chelmsford streets, but I didn't do it alone. I did it with 32-year-old Sarah Payne and 35-year-old Chris Starbrook. They are a couple and both have been homeless for a number of years. Over my tiny snapshot of life in that anarchic world, I realised a few things. Just how people act in a society without rules, the substantial role played by drugs and drug dealers, but also that the people out in the street are no different to you and I. They are people with lives and personalities who, for one reason or another, have ended up in the predicament they are in. Brought to you by Essex Live, this is Humans of Chelmsford. And this is the story of Sarah, Chris, and life on Chelmsford streets. Sarah has lived in Chelmsford for the majority of her life. And for a lot of people in the city, she is a familiar face. She is currently in her seventh year of homelessness after all, and that's just the most recent stint. For Essex Live and Essex Chronicle readers, she will also be familiar because just a week before my 24 hours with her and her partner Chris, she was in Broomfield Hospital being treated for kidney stones. She was still taking her antibiotics on the day. But things have always been tough for Sarah, right from the start, as an uneasy family relationship and mental health problems saw her taken out of school at the age of just 13. Um, I wasn't made to go to school. Hmm. My mum would rather have me down the pub with her than learn. Than learning? Yeah. She said my education, I'd learn more. Out. Living life. So whose decision was it for you to leave? Was it hers? Yeah. She even went to the extreme of putting me on Prozac at 13 to cover herself mm. in case the, um, the authorities got in her case. Oh, blimey. Yeah. yeah. Got me put on Prozac for depression. Yeah. Um, was your... Sam, was your... Feel free to be as honest about this as you like. Was your family situation uneasy? Yeah, very much so. Mm. I think I was more at risk at home than I was anywhere else. Mm. Um, yeah, it wasn't good. So when you leave school at 13, 
where do you go? Like, what goes through your mind? Where do you go next? I didn't really think about it. Just next thing, next thing? Uh, yeah, I was down the pub most of the time. My mum ran a pub at that point, an alcoholic running a pub. Not the best idea, but... Yeah, I was down the pub most of the time until she kicked me out, and then I was on the streets at 13 in Colchester. Sarah's partner Chris has been with her for two years. The 35-year-old comes from, as he describes it, a proper East End family. But he soon moved to Clacton-on-Sea as a child. I was not like boy, ADHD, ADHD wasn't um, yeah. heard of them. I probably had ADHD. He's probably right. It's clear to me that Chris is a genuinely nice person. And at the start of my 24 hours, the first thing he said to me was, we'll keep you safe. But it's also clear to me that there's a very short fuse there, and that on the face of it, it appears to have been his undoing. Through his dad, Chris built a hugely successful career in renovation and building work, but the father of two soon lost it. Yeah, my dad taught me a trade when I was 13 onwards, really. Yeah. Um, Why are you so good at it? Uh, I don't know, it's just something I enjoy doing. Mm. Something I took to. Yeah. You mentioned, what was it, Old Wally Hospital, Wally Hospital things like that. Yeah. What other big projects Ren- did you work on? That, um, Four Seasons Hotel in London, Riverside Apartments, uh, loads of places up Mayfair, King, um, Kensington. Yeah. Um, all over, really. Essex, all over Essex, all over London. We've, we've done big, big places. So it was all going really well? Yeah. Yeah. And then your kids come along as well? I have kids, yeah. I had two kids. Um, I was with my baby mum for 17 years. No, 13 years. And uh, I come home, there was another man in my house, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I obviously attacked him. Went to prison. Come out. Lost my mum to lung cancer. It was the fourth time my mum had cancer in her life. It's a big, big blow when that Yeah, big blow, yeah, yeah. It was a big blow. She was my soulmate. Um, and then I just, yeah, I lost my head, you know. I just started getting silly, drinking and... Mixing with the wrong crowd and ended up on a straight. Because it doesn't just happen overnight. No. Is, is, is it a proper pathway? Yeah, it don't happen overnight, no. no. It's just self-confidence and everything. You just lose, you lose everything, you know. You just, you just lose yourself. Yeah. Your soul. But there weren't no priorities. I wasn't priority either with the cancer. I did try and sort myself out, but they were just trying to put pass the buck on, really. Parenthood. Chris doesn't see his kids anymore, and Sarah doesn't see hers either. She's a mother of three. Amazing. Amazing. Best experience of my life, and they saved my life. How old are they now? 13. My son will be 12 on the 9th of this month, and 8. How often do you get to see them? I don't. Because they, they live with their, their granddad. granddad. Yeah. That's their dad's dad. Yeah. Yeah, in that respect, I can't be selfish. Yeah. It hurts me no end. It kills me. But it's better for them. Because you know they're doing okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's all a mother can ask for. Yeah. People automatically come up with perceptions about homeless people, rightly or wrongly, consciously or subconsciously. With Chris and Sarah, over the 24 hours, 
I engaged in conversations I never would have expected to engage in. For example, Chris was once a hugely keen and talented pianist, and for a good half an hour he explained the intricacies of music written by Tchaikovsky, Mozart and Sergei Rachmaninoff. Give them a piano now, he says, and while he may be a bit rusty, he could easily play you something straight off the cuff. Unsurprisingly, during my 24 hours, we met plenty of other people out on the streets of Chelmsford. Nearly all of them were comfortable with me being there, doing what I was doing, and they were all surprisingly open. But even then, it's clear there is no hard and fast rule for the stereotypical person who descends into life on the streets. There are multiple personalities, multiple backgrounds, and multiple reasons for why they are where they are. With conversation topics ranging from Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar to which players Tottenham Hotspur should sign before the Premier League football season starts, people soon start to get under your skin. So it comes as a real disappointment, bordering on shock at times, to hear how they are treated by others in society. When people kind of ask you what it is it actually like being on the street, how do you summarise that? Lonely. Mm. Um, you feel it's like you're an alien, really. Invisible. So that's just people just walk past. Yeah, just walk past and you get some people that are abusive and some people ain't. Some people are quite yeah. generous, you know. You get the odd ones that are generous. Are there any big examples that stick out for you in yeah. terms of the? The abusive nature that people can dish out. Yeah, a lot of them are uh, <clears throat> a lot of them are spitting here. Uh, a lot of them are shout out, get a job, you like. They, they just don't understand. You can't mm. get a job without an address. Um, occasionally, we've had like physical abuse. That happens rarely. Yeah. Um, someone's tried urinating on us before when we was asleep. You know, it's yeah. Chris's experiences are in no way isolated. Sarah has had them too. Yeah, I don't think they even yeah. acknowledge me, let alone think who I am as a person, which I am a person, I've got feelings. It hurts when people walk past, judge me, you know, call me names. They don't know what I've been through in my life or who I am as a person. They have no idea. Life on the streets is not for the faint-hearted. Perhaps that's inevitable when you are subjected to abuse like that. But right from the get-go, the lesson everyone learns early doors is you've got to be tough. That is made abundantly clear in my conversation with both Chris and Sarah. You've got to... Um, you can't be squeamish. Um, yeah, and you have to toughen up, yeah. Yeah. It's, I suppose, it makes you tougher yeah. when you're on the street. You've got to anyway. deal with stuff yourself because there's no one you can actually cry out to for no. help. No, there ain't no help. How quickly did you learn that? I knew it straight away, really. I weren't stupid. Yeah. Uh, I was a bit of a tough cookie anyway, but it don't, you know, it's some, some people different. They, 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 they learn differently. Mm. You, you learn the hard way. A lot of people learn the hard way on the street. You can't trust anybody. Is that the major lesson? That's, that's that the major there? lesson you learn, yeah. yeah, is you do not trust anyone because there's always ulterior motive for someone. Mm. Is that the thing with anarchy? Is that it's every man for himself? Yeah. Yeah. It's different with me and Sarah because I've got Sarah with me. I have to be careful. If, if, if I was with the attitude of not giving 
I would end up in prison yeah. and she'd be left on her own so I have to be I'm held back a bit mm. then so what, she kind of brings you down to earth a little she bit does, when yeah, things get does. a bit crazy yeah when things get a bit crazy I won't I won't commit anything in, in front of Sarah yeah and things do get crazy first and foremost what you deem normal everyday activity for those on the street is categorically abnormal I I think you should constantly fight making it feel normal Mm -hmm. because if it becomes normal you're never going to get yourself out of this situation and it's hard enough as it is to get yourself out of it i don't want this to be normal i don't want this this to be be me no Mm -hmm. not at all and it is a constant battle to even have it in you to want to do anything Mm -hmm. and not just curl up in a bush somewhere and just give in there's, a, there's only one way that you could know what it's like, and that's by doing it, mm. living it. You can't explain it, you just can't. And people probably wouldn't believe you even if you did. Everything's taken out of you, everything. It's like you're, you're cast out of society, like you're not a valid person anymore, you're just scum, mm-hmm. just a piece of rubbish on the floor, you know. Yeah, it's the way you're you're treated, like you're a second-class citizen. So why do I say categorically abnormal? Well, that fundamentally revolves around the drugs, and the issue is rife. Right underneath everyone's noses, drug dealers and drug runners are easily accessible to all. Just one phone call and you're on the move to a pre-arranged meeting location and there are plenty of people in attendance. It's a congregation, it's where everyone meets and in the space of my first eight hours, I met and mingled with four separate groups of people who were all there to take crack cocaine and heroin. That's one trip for a drugs hit every two hours and I was told that was a quiet day. When you go get your drugs from the dealer, there is one main rule. Don't do them where you pick them up. That's like doing it on their front doorstep, one man tells me. Instead, we go into the bushes in the park or crouch behind garages, hidden away as everyone heats and cooks up their drugs before injecting themselves in the groin. By and large, everyone's veins in their arms have collapsed by experimenting wrongly with needles that are too big for the job. That's why they go for the groin, or, on the odd occasion, the penis. One accusation that usually I see you getting thrown around as well is people just pointing at you guys on the street and just saying crackhead. Yeah, they shout out crackheads, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they tarnish everyone with the same brush. Yeah. I mean, there is a drug problem, obviously there is a drug problem amongst the homeless, mm-hmm. but we're not all the same. Some of us take drugs, some of us don't, you know, it's just, just because yeah. somebody's a crackhead as well, it don't mean that they're... They've lost their morals and they, they they go around stealing off people and all that because that's that's not the case yeah, with some exactly. of them, you know. It's I mean, me, me going around with you, yeah, and I've seen you cleaning up yep. after other people. Yeah, oh yeah, we've cleaned needles up yeah. after other people. Yeah, yeah, we, we find them all the time. We we come across needles all the time. Yeah, but then that's everyone else giving you guys a bad name. Yeah, it gives us a bad name. Yeah, I mean, there used to be a guy that used to be homeless on the street here, Rob. He, he's one that died. And uh, he, at once we was walking along the road and, and he, he was asleep and he had needles out everywhere all across the floor, you know, in, in, in broad daylight in the high street. And he, he's got hepatitis as well, or he had hepatitis. 
and uh, there was kids walking past, there was parents walking past, yeah. and you just think to yourself, it's, it's ridiculous. And there was another guy not long ago outside Halifax. He, um, he there was a picture of him put on Facebook in injecting himself in the groin in broad daylight outside the Halifax. And I mean, yeah. that, but people like that, in my eyes, are, are, are bad. You know, they're. They've got no respect. Is that where the morals because, have gone? Yeah, that's, that's where the morals have gone and where they need their fix. And, you know, the, the, the drug users that keep it quiet, that keep themselves to themselves and they clean up after themselves, I've got no, no qualm with them at all because they, they, they don't bother anyone else. There's no escaping the drugs world if you're homeless. After my 24 hours, I likened it to a currency because that entire society revolves around it. If someone owes someone money in that world, it's usually because the other person lent them some cash for drugs. Don't pay that debt back and you're likely to get a beating because that's how justice is served. On another occasion that night, one man asks Chris if he has any pins, that's needles to you and me. He also says dirty ones will do. That's how desperate he was. Even pins used by someone with hepatitis, for example, would do absolutely fine. But if you were stuck living life on the streets, wouldn't you turn to something like that? If everyone around you was doing it for the buzz, and without it you were just left staring at that miserable hand you had been dealt in life, can you honestly say you wouldn't be involved as well? It's escapism. In the same way you or I have a drink on a Friday night or go to the cinema, all look forward to a holiday, we all look for a break from mundane life. It just so happens that here, your only escape is the drugs route. As one man I met called Nick put it, they are good people with bad habits. Uh, I, I said to him, I said to him, where am I meeting you? He said, uh, the graveyard. I said, what one? He said, hold on a minute. He said, come back. He said, uh, the one by the church. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's Nick speaking there. I was sitting with him as he prepared to inject. He isn't homeless, but he is hugely open about how he has a big drugs problem. But he's got some mad stories to tell. One that sticks in the mind is an anecdote he tells me about getting in a drugs row with another man who he ended up shooting. However, he shot him in the shoulder because he says he respects him. And that's why he didn't shoot him in the head. Nick then went on to say that he probably should have shot him in the foot because after he did shoot him in the shoulder, he kept on coming at him in the fight. A bizarre mental story, but one that in this chaotic drugs world is actually pretty normal. And in Chelmsford, all of this, this easy access to drugs 24-7, the feuds, it all goes on right under our noses. Some people are made for the street life, but some are not. Do you often see people in this world that you don't think should be in it? Uh, there's a lot of people I've met on the street that should not be on the street. I'm one of them, Sarah's one of them, this guy over there is one of them. Yeah. He shouldn't be on the street. He's, too, too, he's, he's getting eaten alive, he is at the moment by everyone, but... Yeah, people try bullying him. But yeah, you do, it's, some, some people love the street life. 
you know. No rules. It's, yeah, there's, there's no rules. It's just anarchy, but personally, I'd rather not. <laughs> that guy over there that Chris referred to is a man called Gareth. At the time of recording that, he was conked out fast asleep in Chelmsford High Street. He has a broken cheekbone, and at one point during my 24 hours, I was ushered away from the scene because Gareth was about to get a beating for owing someone some money. Speaking of people who shouldn't be on the street, it's time to turn back to Sarah, who, as I mentioned at the start, was in hospital just the week before for treatment for kidney stones. As it turns out, she's had problems with her kidneys for the best part of a year now, a procedure that is relatively simple to fix for any normal person, but for Sarah, it's obviously a lot more problematic. Firstly, she is very frail. By the end of my first Saturday night, as we were getting ready to bed down for the night behind the Chelmsford Cathedral office, she could barely walk by the end of the day. But it's the mental battle her kidney is giving her that really hits home. At times, the pain has become far too much for her. She has seriously considered ending her life. Remember, she's 32. It's only a week since you were in hospital. Yeah. With kidney stones on your kidney stones. Yeah, kidney stones on my kidney stones. How long has that been a problem now? Um, a year. Hmm. But it's been a problem before that, I just didn't know it. You're obviously waiting for an operation. Yep. What needs to be sorted before they need... you can feel normal, better. Well, I don't even know if I will. Like he, the doctor said, he can fix me up, but if I'm coming back out to this, I won't get better. I'll be back every six months until I, you know, until I die or housed. Hmm. You were saying before about you deciding whether you want to, to just die and quit. Yeah. Or actually keep going. That has been my year's battle deciding whether I want to just leave it and die or get it fixed and live. How weird is that? Having that debate going on in your mind, bearing in mind you're 32. Yep, and it's only a kidney infection and kidney stones. Yeah. And you're having to choose whether you live or die. A simple thing. But because you're in the situation you're in... Totally different circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's not nice when you, when you, you know, have that decision to make. You shouldn't even have anything like that in your mind. You know, choosing whether to to let yourself die or to live. I mean, no, it's not. It's not normal at all. Even for Chris. The kidney problem is something he has to deal with as her partner. For a man who clearly cares about her, it's not easy having to see her deal with it. As you mentioned Sarah being in hospital as well, it's only last week she was back in hospital. Yeah, she was back in hospital last week. How's that like to deal with from your side? Very hard. Very hard. Yeah. Travelling backwards and forwards ain't easy. And Um, you just... I've slept outside the hospital. I've I've been sleeping outside the hospital when she's there. And yeah, I'm helpless, yeah. There's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. And then see her kind of back out on the street, taking yep, her antibiotics. Taking her antibiotics on the street, yeah. And she shouldn't be out here, should she? No, she shouldn't, no. She, be in, she, she needs somewhere to live. She's been, only a set, she's been out here seven years. I mean, she'd, be, she'd die out here if, if she spends another winter out here. I thought, I can't see her surviving it.
do you turn to when you're on the street? In Chelmsford, there's only so much on offer. There's Chess, who were mentioned heavily in episode 5 of this very podcast. And there are organisations such as Sanctus and Call to Be Kind who do offer support. But how do you actually go about getting the support you need to find somewhere to live? What have you seen? No, I mean, they, 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 they tried to help us before. They, they, they put us into a, um, a B&B, well, not a B&B. They put us in an Oasis Hotel in Harlow for a couple of weeks. And then yeah. from there, we went to Wickford in temp accommodation. We was there for about six months and then, no, about three months. And then they moved us to uh, Southend to then give us a letter to say that they had no duty of care anymore and they, they were kicking us out on the street. They, mm-hmm. this, this was after Sarah had been in hospital the first time. So they then kicked us out on the street again because they said they had no, no duty of care. And we, we didn't question it, we just we just thought, OK, again, you know, we're on the street again. And, but I think if we'd fought a bit more, it'd be a bit different. But mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to pick yourself up. What help have you got? None. Who do you turn to? No one. No one. I haven't got any How, help, how only often from have you my tried? Partner. Oh, I've tried every avenue. Mm. Um, every avenue. Yeah. No help whatsoever. None. What help do you want? I want the choice to have different avenues to get myself out of this situation. Mm. I haven't got a single choice out here. I'm choosing whether to live or die, but I can't choose whether to work to get myself out of this situation, whether to have organisations that I can work with to get myself out of this situation. It's stupid. So you have to experience it to know. Is that part of the problem then, that the people who ultimately decide... Have no idea. Have no idea, have no No. experience of it. No, they don't. And the only people here that are doing anything are just profiting off of our situation and not doing anything to help. So what is it that Chris and Sarah actually want? Well, essentially, it's everything that we take for granted. Endgame, what would you like to see happen regards yourselves? Just, uh, I'd like to be somewhere to live, mate, to be honest with you. Somewhere with walls... Yeah, door, just, just a door, bed, simple things, you know. Yeah. Kettle, a telly, that's me, I'm at me. Everything we take for granted. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. What do you think needs to happen for that to become a reality? The council needs to do more. Mm. Um, I've, got, I've got a few ideas of what needs to be done, and Sarah sort of understands now. <coughs> we've, got to get, we've got to get some paperwork from the hospital and stuff and take it down to the council and show them, look, this is the medical problem yeah they, surely she'd be prioritised mm-hmm. uh, she's never had anyone to push her in the right direction yeah. she's always been around idiots that just take her for granted but, um, yeah that's what needs to be done Waking up on the Sunday morning after a very uncomfortable night's sleep, I was left to ponder a lot of things. 
Firstly, I just slept on concrete throughout the night, with ants marching in formation right next to my head. I only had a sleeping bag, and I used my backpack as a pillow, and the sun was absolutely belting down, so I was already bathed in sweat before I'd even moved. My hair was an absolute mess, and I smelt absolutely horrendous. After flipping over, I then discovered I had also been sleeping a few inches away from a needle. It had its cap on, but that was just another sign to hammer home exactly what sleeping rough is like. But one big thing also stuck in my mind. In a couple of hours, my 24-hour stint as a rough sleeper would be over. I could then go back to my house, apologise to my housemates about how bad I smelled, and then take a shower. I could load up on food, because over the 24 hours I only ate a banana and some strawberries, and I could carry on with my life. Yet for Chris and Sarah, it wouldn't be over. They would face that same life, day after day, time after time, until something changed, and who knows how long that would be. As you listen to this podcast or read the accompanying article, they are still out there on the streets, making plans about where to sleep and how to raise money. I found my 24 hours long enough as it was, but I knew where the end was. I can't imagine how difficult that would be not knowing how or where that life ends. But I was also left glad for one thing. In that isolated world where you have to be tough and you can't trust anyone, Chris and Sarah have each other. That might just be why they make it. What is it about you two that you just kind of click? I don't know, we just... It's like we're telepathic. It's mad. Yeah. You've got each other's backs as Definitely. well. Definitely. Like oh, yeah, yeah. She's the boss, really. Mm-hmm. I'll let her think she's the boss, anyway. <laughs> but then having someone like that to bounce off of and who's got your back mm. when a lot of people probably don't around here. Oh, a lot of people try and split me and say we're up. Mm. They're jealous. Yeah. Is it because they're, because they're isolated? Yeah. Effectively. Yeah, they don't like to see people happy. Yeah. Following my 24 hours on the streets of Chelmsford, I turned to Chelmsford City Council for a response to some of the criticism. Councillor Paul Hutchinson, Cabinet Member of Housing, said homelessness has been a rising problem nationally for some years now, and like all local housing authorities, Chelmsford has both a duty and a strong sense of responsibility to provide advice and to help people to avoid becoming homeless wherever possible. Most of our homelessness work is not visible, for example, working with people whose landlords have given them notice to leave, or who are sofa surfing, and our housing team prevent around 300 people becoming homeless each year. However, we also work alongside other agencies to try to help the small number of people who are sleeping rough in the city. The statement from the council does go on, and you can find the full remarks in the show notes of this podcast episode, as well as the accompanying article on the Essex Live website. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Humans of Chelmsford. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Player FM, Stitcher and a number of other podcast apps. And you can also listen on the Essex Live website. You can follow the Humans of Chelmsford Facebook page and Twitter page for updates on upcoming episodes 
And if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes as it helps others to find us. Many thanks to Call to Be Kind Chances for their help in organising my 24-hour sleep out on the streets. And the final word of thanks go to Chris and Sarah for allowing me to be a part of their world for just a short space of time. Thank you.